When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. This week, I spoke to Jean-Francois Perrault, chief economist at Scotiabank, about what we've learned about our response to the pandemic so far. During the last big recession around the 2009 timeframe, big economies around the world were much more reluctant to use fiscal stimulus compared to this pandemic. While we've had a faster recovery than the last time, we're now grappling with rising inflation, which could start feeding on itself and cause problems for the economy in 2022. And all in all, the economy has an interesting bundle of contradictions. You've got rising wages along with inflation, and the economy's growing and growing fast, but we've got several threats on the horizon. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. JF, it's so nice to have you on the show. It's great. It's great. It's great to be here. Okay. So I want to get your idea about what the big issues are in our economy right now. And I wanted to start by sort of pulling back a little, zooming out. Like After the great financial crisis, like the 2009 timeframe-ish, big economies around the globe were kind of divided about how much fiscal stimulus was the right amount. you know. And there was a lot of discussion of austerity at the time, and I guess kind of battening down the hatches. This time around, with the pandemic, it's the opposite. Policymakers really poured money into this situation. Can we go over some of what we're learning about these two kind of different approaches or how to approach these types of situations? Yeah, well, I'll say, I mean, at the at the outset, one of the big differences in terms of outcomes is, um, you know, in the great financial crisis, we were dealing, obviously, with a very significant liquidity shocks and balance sheet issues and a number of firms across the world. Um, and that necessitated a tremendous amount of stimulus, so both fiscal and monetary. But part of that stimulus was designed to try and raise inflation as well. Inflation had been negatively impacted by, by the crisis. Now, it was very clear over the last 10 years, pre-pandemic, that efforts to raise inflation uh, on the policy side, you know, didn't prove to be all that successful because inflation is basically below central bank targets in most advanced countries. That is clearly not the problem now. So, you know, one thing that is working very differently is uh, the support that's been provided through the pandemic, which was, you know, many times larger than the support that was provided and then taken away in the financial crisis is leading to uh, very different inflation outcomes. So that's, you know, one thing that is very, very clear right off the top. The other is, you know, the pandemic. So it's easy to it's easy to criticize the fiscal response now. Say, well, you know, we did too much. Like, you know, what do we do? We were dealing with the consequences of probably excessively stimulative policy that seemed to be a bit of a challenge to manage. And that's, I think, because there was no playbook to deal with the kind of shock that governments were dealing with when the pandemic came around. Right. So it's not like a typical recession. It's not like incomes were falling or companies were having a hard time. It's we basically shut the economy down and the government tried to manage the economic fiscal consequences of a public health shock by, you know, trying to insulate to the extent possible firms and households from those negative financial consequences. So, you know, we gave a lot of money to households, a lot of money to firms, 
and we and they didn't really know how to calibrate policy in that in that kind of context. It seems pretty clear that we probably overdid it, right? That that in our effort to sorry in their effort to try and minimize the shock, and that they used a like whatever a bazooka and played it safe. And by safe, I mean overstimulate, prefer to overstimulate rather than understimulate. And and we are we are where we are, which is you know the economy has recovered very 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 much faster than anybody thought. And this is true in Canada, it's true in other countries as well. Probably in large part because of all the firepower that was thrown at it and kind of remains in place in a very large number of places. Yeah. And let's talk about that a little minute, though. The idea that the economy is overstimulated right now. In some ways, I guess to a layperson, that might not sound like a bad thing, like overstimulate the economy. Like, what are your concerns looking ahead? Yeah. So, you know, overstimulated is not necessarily the right word, but it's very clear that for instance, if you look at households, they are sitting on a very large uh, financial cushion relative to what was available to them pre-pandemic, right? So a lot of the checks that the government cut for CERB or for you know, enhanced unemployment insurance or employment insurance, you know, still are in bank accounts right now, which suggests that you know some of that money, you know, which wasn't spent was saved was probably excessively generous. Right, you kind of not only did we manage the, the the pandemic from a financial perspective, from a household perspective, but then you come out of it with more money than coming into it, which is quite honestly, it's odd, right? It, it you know you go through a significant recession, usually people end up with less money, and the economy always came out with more money. You know, one of the consequences is we have households that have a lot of money spent on the stuff that's available to buy, right? So on the good side, cars, you know, bikes, motorcycles, boats, basketball nets, hockey equipment. So basically, you know, on the good side of the economy, which is which is uh, largely open, it's been easy for households to buy stuff. So you've seen, you know, evidence of overheating there, right? So the supply constraints and the supply bottlenecks that we hear about, they're they're because demand for those kinds of goods has really risen much, much, much more than anybody thought, because households can't really spend that much on services. So it's difficult to travel still. It's difficult to people hesitant to go out to restaurants, to, to go to hotels and that kind of stuff. So those expenses are redirected to the good side. So it's creating this a bit of an imbalance where the good side of the economy has done remarkably well. And you're running, in fact, into some problems. So no inventory and, and delays for purchasing stuff, prices rising. But the services side is still struggling. So it's kind of this this, this two-speed economy, which it, it's, is largely a consequence of how households and businesses were supported through the pandemic. I see. So that's divide between demand for services, which is waning, like not as many people going out into restaurants, probably not as many people shopping in person in general. And then, you know, but still demand for goods is really going through the roof. What's the cure for that in 2022? Yeah. So what is likely to happen is as we gain further control over the virus and as things reopen. So, you know, it's easier for us to travel. You know, people are more comfortable going out. Capacity limits are lifted and it's just, it's just generally more easy to kind of live the life that we lived pre-pandemic. You're going to see, or we should see, uh, some of that service sector activity pick up significantly and return to pre-pandemic levels or maybe exceed pre-pandemic levels uh, at some point in time. So there should be a shift in expenditure from say, the good side of the economy to the service side of the economy. Now, that's, that's conditioned on us being able to do that, right? If we're still dealing with, with variants 
through the summer and if, you know, public health restrictions come on and off and, you know, we're limited in our ability to go out and do things that allow us to spend money, then that thesis is a little bit hard to defend. But right now, you know, with vaccination rates as high as they are, you know, it's not unreasonable to believe that as the year progresses that, you know, we will be going out more, we will be traveling, taking planes more, we will engage socially much more than we have. And then that's and that's part of the solution, right? Because then it takes a little bit of pressure off the good side, it puts it onto the services side, and should help with the the transition and to manage some of the pressures that we see in the economy right now. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that the Spanish flu epidemic, you know, from like a century ago, where there were really weren't vaccines yet, lasted about two years. And so as we come up on two years, I know there is still a little bit of concern about this new variant, but I guess we've gotten this far without talking about the sort of COVID situation, but we are dealing with all these other issues that have emerged in the meantime with our economy. I think the one that economists are talking the most about is just that inflation is at its highest point in two decades, growing at its fastest rate in three decades. Uh, But we're no longer saying it's transitory. How concerned are you? Like, where would you put it on the list of things we need to address in 2022? Well, it's number it's the number one issue, right? It's it's I mean, apart from the public health implications of COVID, you know, if you're thinking from an economic perspective, inflation is kind of the the ultimate interaction between supply and demand, right? So if you got problems on the supply side or problems on the demand side, it eventually will manifest itself in inflation. So we're seeing that, and and that's kind of a multi-layered challenge. I mean, on on the one hand, you've got firms who have been struggling to acquire certain things that they need to produce stuff. Either because not enough containers, not enough boats, not enough truckers, uh, not enough production because some parts of the system have been shut down because of COVID. Like semiconductors is kind of the typical example on this stuff. So those pressures are contributing to higher inflation uh, because they're raising the cost of doing business. Um, so that's one driver. And, and, and it's reasonable to assume that that is transport, right? That that is temporary. That as either the demand for goods slows a little bit or the production system kind of catches up to demand that those pressures will will start to abate. So that's that's how we think about inflation. So central banks have been talking about this for a while. It's clearly taking a lot longer to come to this transitory like to get on the other side of the transitory bump than we've seen. So there's uncertainty about when that happens, but it's still a reasonable thing to expect. Where you get additional kind of dynamics at play is when you think of it, and this is in the Canadian or U.S. context uh, and a couple of other countries as well, is as these kind of transitory pressures peak and start to fade, you have other pressures which are likely to rise. And that is on the wage side and, and it's on the housing side. So housing measures inflation in most advanced countries. I mean, house prices are not, they're not falling. <laughs> they seem to be. Perhaps house price growth accelerating and rent prices accelerating as well. So that is feeding inflation. That will continue to feed inflation for for quite a while, as from our perspective. And then you've got a an extremely a historically tight labor market in Canada. Right? There's over a million job vacancies now. It's by far and away labor shortages are by far and away the highest they've ever been. If you look at say the CFIB surveys or other measures of kind of you know labor market tightness. So it's very likely that wages are going to rise significantly over the next year. And of course, you know, wages are an important component of, you know, the, the business process, right? I mean, if firms are paying more for workers, they're going to have to charge more for the stuff that they produce and they sell. 
So, you know, as we think about it, you get a little bit less inflation coming from, you know, supply bottlenecks and the things that we've been observing over the last several months, several quarters, and a little bit more coming from more homegrown stuff. And so as a result, you know, it's, we think inflation is going to be reasonably high in Canada. So above 3% for 2022, which is well above the Bank of Canada's 2% target and probably close to 3% 2023 as well. So again, well above the Bank of Canada's target. Because the causes for that inflation shift over time, but this is clearly a major, major economic issue. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The thing about inflation is like when we started at the beginning of this interview, you were talking about inflation being low during the great financial crisis. And even I went back and looked a year ago to what we were talking about. We were talking about, okay, inflation is finally meeting expectations. It's rising to 1%. I've asked this before to other people, is there an easy way to explain to people why 2% is such a magic number? Why going too far above that is going to really hurt? So, I mean, no, there isn't a compelling answer. I mean, some economists will say, you know, if you model 2%, it kind of gives you better results than kind of a theoretical framework. To me, the importance of the target is simply having a target that's reasonably low. And the current circumstances are a great example, a great reminder of why that is. So the idea that you have a central bank that is able to say, don't worry about inflation. You can plan on prices rising by 2% forever, more or less. Provides a very, very important signal to firms and households that condition their behavior. Because when you get to an environment where, say, inflation is like almost 5% in Canada now, folks are like, oh, I'm not sure what's going to happen next year. Is it going to be 3%? Is it going to be 4 What about the year after that? When you start throwing in uncertainty about the inflation process, firstly, it feeds back into inflation. So if you expect higher prices, prices typically rise. But it makes financial planning, it makes decision business planning much, much more difficult, much more challenging when you're not really confident that prices are going to rise in an orderly or predictable way. And that to me is like, that's why it's important to have this inflation target, again, whatever, 2%, 1%, some number. Just so people keep their cool. Yeah. So you, you kind of know, okay, I don't have to worry that two years from now, prices are going to be 13% higher than they are now. No, they're probably going to be 3 4% higher than they are now. Yeah. I mean, that's the interesting thing about this inflation too right now, I think a little bit is that I always imagined like sort of rising inflation to stir sort of panic where people are hoarding goods. We're not really seeing any of that. Like this inflation seems like a sort of anomaly so far. And like you said, it may change patterns. And that's why I just wonder how serious it is in terms of past inflation incidences we've had and how much of a drag it'll be on the economy in the future. Well, I mean, the hoarding thing is is interesting because, you know, effectively the problem that we have on the inflation side right now is people are, I'm sure some people would like to hoard. They just can't because there's not enough stuff to buy, right? So, so that's where you get an inflationary impulse that, that you, you, it's just folks want to buy stuff and there's just not enough of what stuff people want to buy. And that's creating these upward pressure on prices, which again is, is, is very different from the past. You know, to have such a difference between the amount of things that firms and households want to buy and the amount of things available. Like that is very, very unusual. I mean, you see it once in a while in a particular sector, whatever, you know, there's like a shortage, like toys or something. 
but not not across a broad range of things, which is what we've seen over the last 18 months. Right. So, okay. So pivoting for a second, we're, you know, the Christmas and New Year's holiday shopping season are upon us. How is these sort of concerns about inflation changing the shopping data and how we look at it when it comes out in a couple months? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not clear that it's going to change it that much, right? Because folks, the spending decision is, is obviously people are much constrained and, 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 and they worry about that when they, when they make their, their purchases. But, you know, Offsetting to some extent the concerns about the cost of stuff is the fact that the labor market is on fire, right? We're creating crazy amounts of jobs in Canada. And so the number of folks working and the incomes that are being generated is rising at a pretty high pace. And usually when that happens, you see you see kind of a commensurate increase in consumption, right? That people are, if you have more people working, you got more people buying stuff. I would think that, that would be the dominant factor, in this holiday season, right? That that it's just it's more people are working. Then you layer in on top of that some maybe some COVID impacts that you know folks are less willing to go out and shop and maybe do online stuff or maybe they delay some purchases to when they feel more comfortable going into a store if they feel uncomfortable going into a store right now. That you know is going to have some impacts at the margin, I think. Although in Canada, you know, it's pretty clear so far that each successive wave of the the virus is less and less impactful. And then, and then you've of course got the consequence of, you know, with public health restrictions and you know folks not gathering in as large a group as they otherwise would have during the holiday season, and you know less purchases of stuff that you would typically have at parties and those kinds of things. But um, but I don't think inflation is likely to be a major driver or a major influencer of holiday spending patterns. Okay. Any main bottlenecks for the economy in 2022 besides inflation or, or like that, that you see that you're also concerned about? Yeah. I mean, I think the big one for Canada is labor, right? So it looks very likely that we will have a very strong year of growth this year. Oh, sorry, next year. So we had a strong 2021, looks to be a strong 2022 and probably going to be a strong 2023 if everything kind of works out reasonably well. The main bottleneck to achieving that is you know, if firms run out of workers to hire, like if it becomes very, very difficult to find workers, it becomes very difficult to expand. And as I said, with over a million job vacancies now, uh, and with firms reporting labor shortages to be as important as they seem to be right now, you know, if we kind of, the well runs dry on the labor force side, then that becomes a binding constraint on our ability to grow. There's no question about it. You can kind of invest your way out of that to some extent, but it takes time to invest. So it's not like you can just decide tomorrow, I'm going to replace, you know, I need to hire 50 workers and I can't hire workers. So I'm going to use technology for that. Like that doesn't happen overnight. And there's a lot of stuff you can't use technology for. That that, that to me is like, that's the, that's the sleeper story for 2021. I mean, folks are thinking about it a little bit, but it's the thing that is likely to have the most business impact uh, and therefore impact on Canadians. It's an interesting scenario. I don't feel like we've confronted anytime recently. So let me let me ask you one more question. Do you care to make any predictions about what we'll be talking about this time next year? Well, hopefully we're not talking about the virus anymore. Um, I think we will still be talking about labor because that, I think, is a perennial issue, given that the gap is so big. And I also think we're still going to be talking about housing. That, you know, I think house prices are unlikely to go south anytime soon. So affordability concerns are just going to get more and more challenging for Canadians. Even if interest rates rise? Yeah, because what you're dealing with is 
know, interest rates will take some of the pressure off, but really what we're dealing with in the Canadian housing market by and large is just simply not enough homes relative to the number of people in the country. So there's just kind of a structural shortage and population growth hasn't turned around really because immigration, net immigration hasn't really changed yet. We've taken in about 400,000, which is kind of a conversion status in 2021. 2022, 2023, the government's committed to taking 400,000 people into the country. And that's just going to add to housing market pressures as we, as that we're experiencing now. And, you know, the housing market is, you know, something that Canadians are you know, extremely interested in. So I suspect that as the year progresses, that we will be talking about this uh, in a year and two and three for now. Huh. Those seem like very interesting predictions. And um, maybe in a year from now or something, I'd love to chat with you again, um, find out what is happening. <laughs> sure thing. And hopefully I'm wrong about some of these things, but <laughs> all right. Yeah. I don't hear that too often. <laughs> JF, thanks so much for coming on down to business to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. That was Jean-Francois Perlot, or JF as everyone calls him, Chief Economist at Scotiabank. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the team behind this episode, including Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for sterling editing, Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman. And that's it for this season of Down to Business. We'll be taking a short hiatus for the holidays, returning January 12th with a new season and more great guests who can break down what's happening in Canada with the economy and what's happening around the world. Until next time, you can still find all your news at financialpost.com.